Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. Ahmet Gupta is one of the most interesting people maybe I've ever met. He was one of the early pioneers of the co-working movement. He started a photography company called Photo Jojo that enjoyed a rabid following and was eventually acquired. And now he's working on PseudoWrite, an AI-enabled writing assistant. In this conversation, we get into Amit's background, what he learned working with Seth Godin, how he approaches building products with personality, what he's learned about building AI-enabled products, and much, much more. It was a fascinating conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. And with that, let's go to Amit. All right, Amit, thanks so much for doing this. I've known you for a very long time, but we haven't seen each other in person for quite a while, but obviously have been keeping tabs on everything that you've been doing. Why don't we start with your background? This isn't the first thing that you've been doing. You actually have quite an interesting background, I think. Why don't we start there? Tell us about your journey up to professionally, at least. (laughs) Yeah. Well, first, thanks. Thanks for having me here. It's always fun to talk with you and it's been way too long. So I guess really quickly, I've been an entrepreneur most of my life. You know, I started out like fixing computers for the teachers in high school and then dropped out of college midway through to start a dot com in 1999 when that was the thing to do. And I've always been like a computer geek. After finishing college, I remember taking this road trip out west and like the highlight of the whole trip. It was like a two or three week long trip. We saw all these sites and stuff. But the highlight was like going with my co-founder and driving by Steve Jobs' house in South Bay and just like ogling at it. And it's just a totally normal house, like, you know, suburban three bedroom house or whatever, but just like in awe of like being being there. And yeah, after college, I helped Seth Godin start a nonprofit, learned like a decade's worth of marketing in six months, moved to New York City, did a bunch of organizing, hosting events, helping to create the New York City tech community. That's where we met and created Jelly with my friend Luke Crawford, which became this worldwide co-working distributed event. And then it was around that time that I started Photo Jojo. I was super into photography most of my life. And then in New York City, especially, it's just such a photogenic city. I started this email newsletter about photography and creativity that turned into an e-commerce business, turned into the next seven years of my life and was probably the most fun thing I've done. So that's kind of the the highlights. There's there's more that brings us to today, but I'll stop there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd love to, before we, before we jump to kind of present tense, I had forgotten about the Seth Godin thing. You mentioned a compressed education. What were maybe some of the big lessons that you took out of your time with him that kind of informed some of the future stuff that you've done? Because you have a very opinionated approach, I think, to how you build stuff and how you market things. Oh man, I learned so much from him and I feel like I'll never be able to give him enough credit. Honestly, Seth has this unique lens into seeing the world and once you look through it, you can't forget what you've seen. And I'm still learning from him. Like just last week, I feel like I reread Free Prize Inside and I was reminded of so many things I'd forgotten. And I was like, I'm excited to like take them back into my work. But I guess first, first and foremost, the most important thing I learned from him was that marketing and even sales aren't dirty words. They're not bad things. And on some level, I think I'd always thought about them as evil, mm-hmm. as these things to use to manipulate people to to your gain. And I just like, didn't want to be that. I didn't want to, didn't want to be a marketer, didn't want to be a salesperson. But I think he helped me understand that in their purest sense, sales is about helping people solve their problems and improving their lives. And if you're selling something to people who don't want it or need it, that's evil. But if you're making them aware of something that solves their problems or helps make their life better in some genuine way, then sales is just about helping that person. 
And I think that really shifted things for me. It helped me understand that I could talk about the stuff that I was doing and I could do things to help people find what I was doing. And it wasn't just self-promotion. It was actually helping people if I was talking about it in the right way, being respectful mm-hmm. and yeah, talking to the right people. It's a thin, it sounds like it's a thin line. Like how, how what, what were some of the implications, I guess, when you talk about the difference between it being... I guess how do you fi- how do you figure out that you're you're talking to somebody who wants what you're offering and it's legitimately helpful versus like you said the more evil side where you're trying to push something on somebody that they they may or may not want. How do you yeah. think about that line? Yeah, I mean I think step 1 is less talking more listening, right? Like you you got to you got to find out who this person is and it starts with a person, right? Even if you're selling to thousands of people, you have to understand like one person at a time. And Mm -hmm. maybe that person represents a lot of people, but you got to listen. You got to understand what their needs are, what their problems are, why they do the things they do, why their life is set up the way it is, what what they care about, what they love, all that stuff. And I think Mm -hmm. that gives you a lot of basis for understanding how you can help. And potentially you can help with the product or the service you've got. Potentially you can't. Maybe you can still help, but it has nothing to do with your product. It has nothing to do with selling them anything. And I think that's when you're in that state of mind, then I think you're doing it right. You just want to help this person. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You, you, with Photo Jojo, you, I assume you applied a lot of these lessons. You, you mentioned starting with the newsletter, mm-hmm. which is pretty interesting. And, you know, they're, they're some of my favorite examples of, of, you know, pretty successful companies started off either with a community aspect or something like that, where you're almost like building. I hate to use the word platform because it's it's a bit a little bit of a loaded word, but what was the what was the thinking behind starting with a newsletter and and was it was that all you were trying to do and then it evolved into a bigger thing or was that kind of the plan from the beginning? Yeah, so it was the plan from the beginning was just to do newsletter. So the, the rest of the stuff was gratuitous, and I think our th- thinking at the beginning was. I wanted to start small. I didn't want to raise money. I was making some money like consulting on the side and I wanted to do something manageable and tiny. And Mm -hmm. the newsletter felt anachronistic at the time. I feel like newsletters have had this like second wave recently, but this was in the trough of that where like newsletters weren't weren't really cool at the time. But there were so many blogs and so many websites and it really, and RSS was a big deal. And it felt like people's attention was split across so many different spheres. And so I wanted to find a way that I could write only once or twice a week and still have an impact instead of having to post to a blog eight times a day or whatever to like have that impact. And mm-hmm. email was the way to do it because people were still paying really close attention to email. So that's why we started with that as a platform. And along the way, we added the other stuff, mostly because advertising was the only way to monetize the newsletter. And I didn't like selling ads. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. That makes sense. You, from the very beginning with, with Photo Jojo and, and, and also with what you're doing now, it seems like, and again, I think this, I don't know if this ties back to some of the lessons that you learned from Seth, or if this is just how much of this is just who, who you are as a personality and injecting it into your brand. But, you know, I've used Photo Jojo in my class as a case study around like, yeah. and I call them delighter features, but it's like throughout the product, you're using copy in a way that is, and I don't want to use the word cute because I think it, I think it diminishes maybe or under understates what it is that you were actually doing, but yeah. the the product is a, has a personality and it, it's throughout. And you had, you know, you would ship <coughs> dinosaurs, little dinosaurs with the first order. And I remember Flickr with like thousands of these little dinosaurs on Flickr mm-hmm. and the cookie smell and in the box and all that kind of stuff. Like, like yeah. how much, 
How did you think, how do you think about, I guess, injecting personality and using brain? Cause it seemed like it was a huge force multiplier for you from a retention perspective and word of mouth. And is that, I guess I just have a lot of, like, how do you think about that? Cause it's, is, is it, is that you? And that's just, I can't help but be that way. Or is that strategic or both? How do you think about that stuff? Yeah, there's, there's so many interesting things there. It's something I'm really passionate about. And it's definitely something you mentioned, Seth. It's definitely something that I think he also helped spark. He talks a lot about being remarkable and how it's one of the most important ways that you can market and sell, just like making a better product, a more interesting product. And yeah. when you look at the web today, when you look at you know apps today, there's so much sameness. Like if you go back a decade or two decades, there's an incredible diversity of designs, of interactions, of all sorts of like playful things. The web was really yeah. fun and quirky and weird 20 years ago. And now it's, mm-hmm. it's all like very, very homogenous, which is... The dribbalization of the of design. <laughs> of the time, yeah. Right? And it's, it's a little sad, but it's also a huge opportunity. So it's great because if you're willing to actually go out and do something different, it's so easy to get noticed because you don't have to be that different to stand out today. And I think, you know, if you try to make something that looks like everyone else because you think that's what you're supposed to do, it's just forgettable because there's so many things like it. And if you'd make something different, that's going to please not everybody, because if you try to please everybody, you please nobody. If you try to please yourself, if you try to make something fun for yourself and your friends, you'll find that so many people are excited about that weird, quirky thing and they want to tell friends about it. And I think that's where the ROI comes in because we don't, I don't think we spent uh, a single dollar on Facebook ads or Google ads or any of that stuff. We didn't didn't pay into that, like ad, you know, hegemony, monopoly, duopoly, whatever. We just made stuff that was weird and interesting and worth talking about. And that was not only cheaper to access people, it was just so much more fun to do it that way. Like if you spend your life optimizing Google AdWords, your life is a spreadsheet. If you spend your life trying to find like quirky, weird design elements and ways to make people smile, then you get videos of people smiling and photos of them smiling and they're excited to see you when they meet you. It's just a whole different world. So yeah, that's always what I've been about. It's definitely something that I want to work into Sudorite, what we're doing now, even more and more. And I don't think we do it enough yet, but I think we're going to do it. We're going to do more of it. Is that just, is it just, I mean, I I would imagine that it's a, um, to a certain degree, it's a muscle that you just have to work with practice. But I mean, Either early on or even today, are there, I don't want to use the word frameworks, but are there tools or techniques or things that you do to, to, to make that more likely to happen? Like as an example, like I, I, I used to tell my students, you know, when you're doing like your, your UX audit or whatever it is, like look at every single page on the site, hold up this version of the, per, like if your product was a person, who would they be like, who would they sound like, we do that exercise. And then look at every single page on the site and ask yourself like, how can I make that 10% cooler or weirder or whatever it is? Like, is there anything similar that you've leveraged to make this happen more consistently? Because you're very good at it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that going to the edge is the is the way that I try to think about it. So you don't have, it's okay when you're brainstorming. It's okay when you're just trying to be creative to think of bad ideas. And one of the most easy and like methodical ways to think about ideas is going to extremes. So if you're uh, thinking about any type of problem on any vector you're thinking of, you can think about what's the most extreme on either end of the spectrum that you can go to with this, whether or not it's Mm -hmm. ridiculous, whether or not it's possible, just Mm -hmm. think about it. And as you think about it, you start to think about other extremes. And as you think about these like absurd things, usually you come up with something that actually could work, even though it's extreme or something that's like just back from the brink of being absurd that actually would work and would get a lot of attention. So I I like to do that. Yeah, that's really cool. I think that's actually, that was a 
wasn't that a Godinism as well? He talked about like mm -hmm. Hummer and Mini Cooper at the time as being like the small, you can go the smallest, you can go the biggest. Like it almost doesn't matter yeah. what yeah. edge you choose, just pick one and go all the way. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just don't be in the middle. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you seem to have a gift too around like around copy and, and, and voice. Is there, are there any approaches that you use there? Cause I mean, you know, that's, that's the, the cheapest way to do brand, I think, for a startup, especially, mm -hmm. is is through copy, right? And and to to give it a personality. How do you think about that? Yeah, so I think it's it's similar in a lot of ways. I think you have to write for yourself, and that's true when you're writing fiction too. I think you have to write for yourself if you're trying to write yeah. for you know like B two B SaaS customers or whatever. You're going to write really boring copy. <laughs> it's going to look like everyone else's copy because you're afraid right. you're you're going to try to make it seem like as inoffensive as possible. And yeah. that's, that's the death knell for any copy. And I think it takes courage to make something that might make people look funny at it. You know, it might make people a little confused potentially too. It takes courage, but I think it's so much scarier to be forgotten, to be forgettable, to be ignored than it is to, you know, make people a little confused or upset. But yeah, just write for yourself. I think that's the easiest thing for me. And it's hard to get into, but yeah, it, it takes some courage to to put out some stuff like that. Yeah, that's super cool. Okay, so so you did Photo Jojo, you, you ended up um, selling it, I believe, took some time off, and then you got into fiction writing. How did that evolve? Yeah, so af after Photo Jojo, I took some time off and I like traveled and advised some startups and coached and did a bunch of different things and wanted to find my way to something different just because I yeah. had the opportunity. And I grew up reading science fiction. It's what got me excited to go out and invent things, to make things. And I hear that story from so many people, so many yeah. of my peers. And it kind of saddened me to see the state of science fiction today. It's it's just very dystopian. And I think that it's, I mean, it's still fun to read, but it's, it's kind of dark. And yeah, there's a theme. Yeah, it tends to be pretty consistent. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. And you can't invent stuff that you can't imagine. I grew up reading science fiction that was some, some of it was dystopian, but some of it was very utopian. Some of it was balanced. And yeah. if you can only read books and read stories about how dark the future is going to be, how bad technology is going to make things for us, it's hard to imagine technology making the world better. And that's dangerous, I think, because we yeah. read this stuff, we grow up on it, and then we try to invent what we saw, good or bad. So I wanted to at least try to add another voice to that chorus, one that was less was less ominous and more utopian, yeah. more balanced. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's why I got into science fiction. Wow. And how did you go about learning to write? I mean, I mean, not that you didn't know, obviously you knew how to write, but you know what I mean? How did you learn no, to write yeah. fiction? Did you learn how to, yeah, like what was yeah. that process? Like? <laughs> I, I was learning how to write. I felt like I was like, you know, all the way at the bottom again. I was used to being good at what I did. And here I was like terrible at what I did, you know, trying to climb this, this rope. I read a lot of stuff. I wrote a lot. I, you know, I read Stephen King's on writing and all the writing books that everyone tells you to read. And they all just say like, yeah. just write every day, write every day. So I just wrote every day. Yeah. Probably the biggest lever for me was finding other people who were at a similar stage trying to become science fiction writers. So I eventually found my way to a group that our friend Sahil started. That's where I met my, my co-founder, James Yu, who's my co-founder for Sudore. He was also someone who had started some tech startups and then decided to write science fiction. But yeah. having that like weekly cadence of meetings where we were bringing work, critiquing work, and feeling accountable to each other to create every week was absolutely mm. essential. That's so cool. And then was that was that local or was that d distributed? Always distributed. We were all in different places, so it didn't really change after the pandemic started. 
And were you, is it like you're meeting on, on zoom or are you sending, I got it. Yeah. We usually, we send stories to each other. Uh, it's been on hiatus for a while. Both James and I have gotten so busy with Sudorite, so we haven't been going, but we would send stories to each other a few days before the meeting. We would all individually read the stories and write up some critique. And then we'd have like a one hour meeting where we are going through each story and giving critique. That's super cool. It seems really valuable. So I, I get that brings us to, to Suda. I mean, so you're, you're, you're getting into fiction writing and you're doing all this stuff. What was it that got your gears moving around creating something like Suda? Yeah. So GPT-3 came out last year. Uh, yeah. GPT-3, for those who don't know it, it's just basically one of the largest text transformer models that's been released. It was created by this organization, OpenAI, and it inhaled the entire internet, this entirely you know, large corpus of books, all this other written material. And yeah. its purpose is to basically take something and try to predict what comes next. So if you give it a paragraph, give it a page, whatever, it'll try to predict the next few sentences, paragraphs, page, whatever. So we saw this and just because of the shit, I think we both James and I had seen former versions of this and they're like fun toys, but they weren't really useful. But there are folks like Robin Sloan and other authors who had played with this stuff. Ken Liu, I think, had played with it too as a way to accelerate their writing and just kind of deviate from their normal ways of thinking. And GPT-3 was orders of magnitude larger. So it got very, it got us very excited. And I think James was playing with it first. He just started to like build this little web app that was a text editor and would predict what you were going to write before you wrote it. And I got excited seeing that. I started playing around with it too. And I think very quickly we saw that this wasn't a toy anymore. This could actually spark your creativity and actually enhance creativity in a way that wasn't possible for this medium before. I think we we forget if we're not writers, like as a designer and as a photographer, I'm so used to using all these digital tools to enable my workflow and take all the drudgery out of like, I don't go to the dark room when I develop photos. It's like instantly there and I can edit yeah. them very easily, but you can't do that with writing. And so as a writer, you're like just really painstakingly working word by word to make things better. And I think there's a future coming pretty quickly where you don't have to do that, that you can have some pretty powerful assistance in those things. Yeah. So, you know, you started tinkering around and, and now, you know, pseudo, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's kind of hard for maybe for folks to visualize, especially like over audio or whatever it is, but walk through like how, how, how do you use pseudo and what does it, what does it help you do? Yeah. So there's a lot of different things it can do. One of the things it helps with is writer's blocks. So if you're working on a story or it can be nonfiction too, working on an essay or whatever, and you're stuck with where to go next, you can hit this button called wormhole and wormhole will actually write what comes next in four different directions. Uh, You can hit it again. You'll get four more. And it's in your own style. It's in your own kind of voice. If there's any narrative arcs or character arcs you've started, it'll try to follow those. And it does a remarkable job. It's like, it's astonishing how good this is. It doesn't seem like a computer should be able to do this. And it's a great way to spark what comes next. You may use the copy that comes out. You may just use it as inspiration for where you want to go with the story next. So it can do that with prose. You can also do that with an outline. Maybe you've like sketched out the beginning of something and you want some ideas for where you could go next. It can help you with that. Maybe you struggle with description. A lot of writers say that need help with like describing a scene or a character or whatever. You can just highlight that thing hit describe, and it'll give you ideas for how to describe that person, place, or thing using each of your five senses. So what it smells like, what it looks like, what it feels like, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it does It does a ton of other stuff. It can actually like take a summary of a scene you've written and expand it out into a first draft. It can mm-hmm. uh, give you feedback on a story. It can... We're launching this new feature called Brainstorm, which I'm really excited about, where you can very freeform, uh, just brainstorm different ideas for anything. And it'll, right. it's a very fun kind of playful way to come up with ideas. 
Yeah. That's, that's so cool. How, as you've, I mean, I would imagine that you're, you're pretty heavily, if not now, it sounds like you've gotten pretty busy, but for a, at least for a, a good chunk of time, you were actively using this to help you write. What have you found about the experience of kind of having this sidekick with you? Where do you end and it begins? And it, it seems like it's a very collaborative kind of process, I would think, right? Yeah, it's it's not lonely. I think that's one of the big things you start to feel, especially going from like kind of building companies and building tech. It's so yeah. collaborative. And yeah. when you're writing, you're really just sitting by yourself at the keyboard. If you're stuck, you're banging your head against the desk, wishing you were not stuck. And I think one of the coolest things about this is that it feels like there's someone else in the room that you can turn to and ask for help. And that person may not have the idea, but they're going to help you get unstuck and help you get moving. Wow. So that's the, that's the biggest thing. It helps you stay in flow and it feels like you're not alone in the process. Yeah. That's, that's, that's so fascinating. What have you, I guess, you know, you're, you, you know, I think of you as, as, as a, as a marketer, but more importantly, I think of you as a product person, just because of your sensibilities. I have to think that designing a product embeds very heavily AI would be a very new and a very different type of challenge. Like what were some of the things that maybe you learned in the process of trying to design a product that kind of folds that stuff in, in such a major way? Yeah, well, we're still learning for sure. Uh, yeah. I, I think we've figured out only a fraction of what we need to figure out so yeah. far. But I think that one of the challenges that comes up a lot for us is how far to go with the interface. What you see today is a pretty kind of straightforward interface. It looks like a text editor. It looks like another program that you've probably used before. But AI enables you to do a lot of things that feel like magic. And I think to fully take advantage of the power there, you probably need an interface that looks alien from what you're used to. And I think that's hard because people are used to writing in text editors. They're used to writing in the specific text editor that they use. Maybe it's yeah. Google Docs, maybe it's Word, maybe it's Ulysses, whatever it is, they love it. And so getting them to switch to something else is hard. Getting them to switch to something else that looks nothing like anything they've used before is even harder. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's one of the challenges. How do we ease people into working with something like this? Not mm -hmm. only because it's going to eventually it's going to look very different. Today, it looks pretty similar, but it works very different. Like you're not, the process of writing in this tool is more of like a back and forth than just you spewing out words. And I mm -hmm. think to really get the most out of it, you do have to learn to use it and adjust to it. So that's a challenge, how to help people get into that. And I think we're still figuring that out. Are there any early lessons that you've picked up around like, you know, like, like it sounds like you're trying right now to sort of gently guide people and try to slowly change their mental models. Like, what are some examples that you can think of, of maybe ways where you've interjected like, hey, this is 5% different from what you're used to, but it's not different, so different that it freaks you out or, or you know, completely confuses you? Yeah. So I think one of the things that's helpful is that we've tried to build features that are addressing specific problems that come up over and over when we talk to writers. So like describing stuff is a specific thing that comes up a lot. So if we can if we can say to them, this will help you with descriptions, just select the thing that you need to describe mm -hmm. and hit this button, it'll give you ideas on the right. Like yeah. they don't need to understand that on any of the other features, they don't need to understand anything else about it. If that works, then it's useful to them. And hopefully they'll like eventually start to use the other things. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a learning. And I think we need to dive even deeper into that, figure out what are the specific problems that writers have and how can we in that first use, like get them mm -hmm. from 
never having seen the tool before to understanding that this can solve a very specific problem that they already have. Yeah. I would imagine uh, you mentioned first use that whole like idea of like the aha moment and things like that. Like I, I would, would imagine you took onboarding pretty seriously. Anything interesting you learned there about you know on designing an onboarding experience or first time UX for something like this to get to mm. make it more likely that that light bulb goes on for them? You mentioned like having a very specific use case is one of them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Anything yeah, like that? that yeah, I think one of the learnings is that most people will skip the onboarding, or like a lot of people will skip the onboarding. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, I mean, no one wants a tour. We have this like really fun tour when you start the app or like it gives you a little bit, bit of writing and it like shows you how to use things and you actually use the tool to like go through, to go through the interview, you got to go through the onboarding. And it's not that long, but yeah, a lot of people are just like, just give me the thing. I want to use it. Okay. So that's a learning. I don't know that we figured out what to do about it yet. I think probably we need to find ways to embed pieces of the onboarding into the product itself. Even if you, yeah, even if you've already gone past the onboarding. Makes sense. You know, you mentioned with Photo Jojo, you know, you, you had a, a very particular approach to company building, and it seems like you're doing the same thing here. I mean, you, ra- you raised money this time, but they, it sounds like they were from mostly from angels or entirely from angels who are philosophically aligned or at least understand where you're coming from and are on board with it. Um, yeah. And you're, you know, you're, you're just using word of mouth again. You're not running ads, any of that kind of stuff. Um, it seems like there's a common thread around trying to be very not slow, but sustainable in terms mm-hmm. of how you think about growth. How do you think about, I mean, is that accurate? Why do you think that that is a, a better way potentially of building a business or at least, you know, better for you? And then maybe, you know, how do you, is that advice that you give to other types of founders who feel like they have a lot of pressure, either self-imposed pressure or, you know, certainly once they raise pressure from their investors? Yeah. So I think that's accurate. That is the approach we're taking. And I think with, with photo Jojo, I didn't raise any money. So that was all self-funded started with very little, like maybe 10,000 in the bank or something. So a lot of people don't have 10,000, but it's less than the 10 million you might raise as a VC funded startup. And I think that the reason I did it that way is that I was happy with a single or a double. Like I wanted to I wanted to have a good showing at this game, but I didn't need to go big or go home. Like I didn't want to, I didn't want to fail. And I didn't want to, I guess I didn't want the stakes to be so high that it was most likely I was going to fail. But if there was a very, very tiny chance I succeeded, it'd be a huge success. And I think the same is true this time. Like, I think I would love for even a bigger success story here, but a success story for me would be a company that uh, builds a product that people love, that a lot of people use, that's a sustainable business, that's growing because the product is great, not because we're just throwing floodwaters worth of money into ads. And I think that, yeah, we, we were very intentional about the investors we chose. James and I actually were working on this for about a year, just ourselves without taking money because we were afraid to take money and then have the reins of a VC kind of driving us into the yeah. ground. We'd mm-hmm. both been in startups before. We knew what that felt like. And he's got two young kids. I you know, have all my interests, my writing, my surfing, all sorts of other stuff yeah. that I want to keep doing. And so we were, we weren't sure that we could actually build a company without making, making huge sacrifices. And mm-hmm. it was actually the person who organized our writing group, Sahil, who ended up being our first check into the round, who convinced us that we could actually do it this way, that we could mm-hmm. be completely upfront about the way we want to build this company and still find the money we needed to accelerate it. So that's the path we took. We raised yeah. a smaller amount of money. We raised it entirely from angels. And we've told them all the way we want to build this company is for the long term. And now we see if we can do that. Like it's still, it's, you know, I found, I was telling Nancy, my girlfriend that, uh, 
I didn't want to work on this like 40 hours a week even. I wanted to have weeks that were like shorter weeks and that that was my goal. And now I'm working really long weeks and it's because it's fun. So it's okay, but it's like, it's easy to lose sight of that too. Yeah. I would imagine that, you know, one of the main ways in which you can minimize burn is like you mentioned, you're not, you're not relying on paid at all. And it seems like with the photo Jojo story, one of the lessons that you took out of that was you got into newsletters because one, I mean, obviously it's like high, high, high signal, low noise, but also you zigged where everybody else sagged a little bit. Are you doing something similar here? Cause you're, you're, you're you need to, you're needing to acquire even probably even more so than, than photographers or photo enthusiasts. I would imagine that the, the market is at least current state is pretty niche. So, you know, what, what sorts of approaches are you leveraging to organic drum up interest for this? Yeah. So I would say at this stage, we're still figuring out what is the, what is the core product that this company is going to be about? We have something today that, you know, hundreds of people are using and paying for which is awesome. But I don't think we consider ourselves as having product market fit. I think right now we see the next six to 12 months as being a lot of rapid experimentation, throwing things up, showing people things and seeing what they, how they respond. So at this point, we're not doing very much marketing or promotion at all because we want to, we want to feel really good about the product that we have. So in the future, I'm not sure what it will look like. I mean, one of the things that differentiates, differentiates us today from other AI tools is that we've focused on narrative. Mm-hmm. A lot of the other tools are mostly focused on like ad copy, marketing copy, website copy. We have people using it for those things, but we've really focused kind of the angle of the product on narrative, whether that's prose, fiction, nonfiction, or screenwriting for people in Hollywood, that kind of thing. So that's definitely a differentiator, but who knows? I feel like the, the company could change a lot in the next six to 12 months. So along those lines, I mean, it sounds like you're open potentially to kind of branching beyond, you know, fiction writing. I'd be curious to having done a pretty deep dive and probably being more familiar with GPT-3 and potentially, you know, AI in general, more than the typical person. How has it informed what you think the future of AI looks like? Maybe it could be specifically as it relates to more creative type of work or even just broader white collar work. Like, I think it was the Sapiens author that talked the idea about like, we're already sort of cyborgs in a way, you know, we're Mm -hmm. augmented. This sure seems like a next step in that sort of evolution. Like, how do you think about this? And maybe what's the, you know, you mentioned like with your science fiction about like, what's the non-dystopian version of it? You know what I mean? Because you you seem pretty enthusiastic about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's an incredible accelerant to creativity. I think it's an enabling technology. And I think that anytime we've had technology that's made things easier, that's taken the grunt work away from humans, it's created more jobs, it's created more abstraction. And so you're like working at a higher and higher level and those low level opportunities go away, but more high level opportunities come to be. So I think the same is probably true here. I think that eventually for writing specifically, the role of the writer goes up a few levels and you become more like an editor. So for the things that you love to write, you're still going to write them word by word. You're going to wordsmith them. But for stuff that you're like, oh, I don't want to write this love scene. I've just done a million of these or something. Now you've got a, you know, a writer at your beck and call who can like do that version, the first draft for you and can help flesh it out. And then you can direct it, you can modify it, you can massage it, whatever. And I think that's true in all creative fields. I think all white collar work will probably be a collaboration with AI and mm-hmm. In the future, that's going to be that's going to be the skill set. Like, how do you craft the thing that you make in collaboration with an AI partner? Because it's very different. It's a different way of working, and I don't think the way it works today is the way it will necessarily work in ten or twenty years. I think we're still mm-hmm. figuring out those interfaces, but yeah. I think it's very clear that it's going to be a part of almost any creative work in the future. 
What kinds of questions or, or thoughts have you either encountered or have you formulated yourself? Like, cause there's t- so many implications here in terms of like, I would imagine, for example, that, that one of the first questions that people ask you around this stuff is, can, can a computer actually write compelling fiction, you know, on its yeah. own, for example. And, and I know yeah. that's not what the pro- purpose of the product is right now, but I mean, it, it sounds like you envision a future in the not too distant future where it can write parts of it, certainly, and do it at a high level, you know, questions around, do people want to consume stuff that they, that if they, if they're, if they're aware that the computer wrote it, like there's just right. lots of not, not ethical questions necessarily, but like philosophical existential kinds of questions. Like what, mm-hmm. what sorts of things have you been running into either from other people or just as you you and your partner, as you've been kind of processing this? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. And I think it comes up a lot, especially when people first hear about Sudere. I think people fall into one of two camps. They're either really excited about like how this can like enhance their work, or they're really afraid that this is portending this very dark future where humans aren't in the loop anymore and, and machines are just yeah. doing all the writing. And I, I think I usually go back to my experience with photography. You know, the, it used to be a time that the only way to get a photo of you Sean would be to hire a painter and they'd spend several hours or days like painstakingly putting paint onto paper to make it look like you. Today, I can take something out of my pocket, press one button and I have this perfect representation of you. Um, And I am not an artist. I'm not a, a photo artist. There are photo artists today and they still exist. It's not that, you know, painters went away. It's not that artistry went away. It's just that it like abstracted another level up. So to be a Dino Arbus or to be an Ansel Adams or to be any of these people, you need a higher level of skill than you need before. And certainly with camera phones, like, you know, Photos are everywhere now, just as in the future, writing may be everywhere. And our level of appreciation of the skill has gone up. Like we can understand what makes a good photo good in a way we Mm -hmm. couldn't 10 years ago, which is all a long way of saying, yes, possibly in the future, an AI could spin out a bunch of random stories, just like a million monkeys at a typewriter could pump out a million stories. And they'll probably not be very meaningful without a human in the loop guiding them and driving them and trying to imagine what they should be about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it it could, the areas where it seems like it would be very difficult are, you know, things like, you know, like your, the, 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 the things that you bake into your products, for example, right? Like humor, um, there are aspects of things that, of, of writing where you're trying to tap into an emotion or you're, you're inferring something that requires two or three sort of logical steps to make that connection. Those seem like areas that at least in the short term, slash medium term probably would be difficult for it to accomplish, right? But it sounds like you, you feel like it'll get pretty good at narrative construction, flow, chains of events, like all that kind of stuff. I think okay. at some point it will get better, yeah. And I think uh, it's it's hard to know if it'll ever get to the point where we'll prefer to read something written by a computer or human. I think it's probably unlikely that it'll get to a point where you'll always be reading computer stuff because I think the more there is of a specific type of thing, the less valuable it becomes. And so then if you have a bespoke version written by humans or guided by humans, you're going to prefer it because it's rare, it's more interesting, it's more unique. But will it be able to create a story that someday like makes logical sense? Probably. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's crazy. That's exciting. You know, I want to respect your time. I, I was curious though, you know, you mentioned reading science fiction and how it was you didn't like how dystopian it was. And, you know, that, that informed kind of how you approached writing. It certainly informs, I think, how you approach, like your, your, your products are fun. 
and happy to use. And I think that people, I have to think that people come away feeling even if subconsciously, like a little bit better about themselves. How do you think about the state of, you know, tech right now? Like you're sort of in the tech world. Obviously you're very embedded from an AI perspective. And I know that your network is very tech heavy and all of that kind of stuff. There's a lot of, I think to your point, maybe, maybe for similar reasons, like some negativity around like the future of things. How do you, how do you advise people to see the good? What is the good that you see? What are you maybe excited or optimistic about? And then how do you, maybe how do you convince people to shed that sort of negative lens that they maybe are, have subconsciously sort of acquired over the years? Yeah. So I think if you go back like 10 or 20 years, tech is the underdog and tech is exciting and tech is like making all this cool stuff that we get to use yeah. for free. And if you fast forward to today, tech is this evil monster that's consuming the world, is making it more homogenous, less personal, less less fair, less equitable, all these things. And I don't think there's anything unique about technology. I think that that's technology is a representation of us. Any industry that's been a big industry in in the years of our, you know, of our species has had periods where it was the underdog and it was exciting. And then it became big and it became evil or at least perceived as evil. So how do we see it as good? There's obviously people still creating really wonderful things using technology. We're all, we're all using technology today. Anything that we're doing is using technology probably. So it's just a choice. Like it's just, I don't think there's any magic to it. I think we can see the things that we love about this world that technology has has enabled, or we can see the things that are terrible at the world that technology has enabled. Mm -hmm. So we can make that choice each day. We yeah. don't have to ignore either one. We can see them yeah. both too. Do you, how do you, with, with that in mind, how do you think about like, it sure seems like the whole Web3 community, depending on who you ask, I mean, has a lot of the similar kind of seeds of things that were present 20 years ago. People are just trying stuff. A lot of it looks super weird, even from like a UI perspective. There is a high degree, there's a lot of skepticism, but there's also a very high degree of optimism. How do you, I mean, is that, I don't know if you've been tinkering at all or, or exposing yourself to what degree into that world or not, but it sure seems like it fits your ethos or at least parts of it fit your ethos. What do I think about it? Yeah, I feel like, you know, I honestly don't think I've dabbled enough in it to have an opinion yet. But I think that yeah. whenever you see people who are very creative and very smart getting excited about something, there's probably something there. So I think I'm yeah. skeptical about the skepticism, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't I don't fully understand all of this stuff. And I feel like I'm not yeah. entrenched enough to have an opinion about it. But uh, just yeah. knowing the people that I am friends with who are excited about it, I trust that there's something there. And yeah. I'm excited to see what comes from it. Yeah, very cool. Well, man, I, this was this was fantastic. For folks that want to learn more about Pseudo, where where should we send them? You should send them to pseudorite.com. S-U-D-O-W-R-I-T-E.com. Awesome. Well, you know, like I said, it's been far too long. It, it was it was fantastic to be able to chat with you and catch up and hear how things are going. Super excited to kind of see where you take things. It's made me, you know, I I just playing around with the product kind of made me want to write more again. So I mean, awesome. it's, it's uh, I want to see if I can try to figure out how to leverage it with the types of stuff that I, you know, that I create, but that's great. Yeah. It's super exciting, man. It's super exciting. Congrats on your, on the progress so far and, and best of luck. Thanks so much, Sean. Great to talk. My guest today was Amit Gupta. 
For more information about how to disrupt your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, would love a review on Spotify, iTunes, or whichever platform you use. That's it for this episode. Thanks as always for listening. We'll see you next time.